Good morning, everyone. Take a moment and ground yourself, please. Find your breath. Feel your feet or your legs on the ground. And even though we're all in our own homes or our own spaces, we're also cohabiting this Berkeley Zen Center imaginary space together. So thank you. The main matter of my talk today is going to be on Sangha, how we are Sangha, how we have been, how we conduct ourselves and come together. I'd like to follow up on uh, one thread of the discussion after Mary Durier's talk last week. Uh, I think this went to some degree unsaid, and I'd just like to make it clear. If anyone is having difficulty at Sashin, whether this is a, you know, Sashin face-to-face, which is what we're so used to, or an online Sashin, uh, and whether the difficulty is physical or mental, this is really something that we want to know about. I want to know about, the session director wants to know about, uh, we want to know about and we want to respond to. Of course, each of us has to determine the dimensions of whatever difficulty we are experiencing. Uh, difficulty is not necessarily a bad thing at all. And, you know, we create difficulty for ourselves anyway in the form of Sashin by uh, maintaining this upright cross-legged posture for hours a day and certain kinds of pain are going to come up. And it's very good for us to learn how to meet that pain, how to include it in our zazen, uh, and to recognize that uh, how we meet the pain in our legs is also analogous to how we meet the various kinds of pain in our life. And this is actually part of the, it's at the heart of practice. At the heart of practice, as the Buddha said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. So we have to be able to experience the various kinds of pain that naturally arises and find out how to meet it. But it's also really important to understand that when that pain arises, we are not alone with it. And in a sense, it doesn't belong to us in the sense that uh, we understand that the that the self that we experience is a constantly changing flow of aggregates and also the whole form of our practice is such that we sit together not all buddhist forms are like this uh, 
you know, I've been to places in, in Southeast Asia where uh, the monks and nuns, each of them sits in their own kuti, their little cabin, one person cabin, or uh, in some places they still uh, have a meditation place in a cave. Uh, and they sit alone and may come together for chanting. But our form is to sit together. And we're doing this in a kind of revised fashion online, of course. And it's not this it's not exactly the same as sitting side by side in the Zendo. But still, I want you to understand that you're not alone if you have a difficulty. And if you feel like this difficulty is something that uh, perhaps you can't include or get yourself around, then um, we've talked about this uh, for a number of years. and. Uh, if you're having such such a problem, mental or physical, please chat uh, or write to the Sachin director or write to me or write to one of the other uh, practice leaders who are there. And we will respectfully listen to you and also help you figure out what the best plan is for you to uh, take care of yourself. If it's called for, we have people who are uh, trained medical professionals in our Sangha, and we have trained uh, therapists and uh, we would ask one of you to one of them to uh, to help you. So no one, I just want to be clear, no one should be left alone to tough it out through what you may see as a crisis. So even though this year's Rohatsu again is an online event. I still really think of it as Sishin. And I know that anything can arise within the container of Sishin. So if you find yourself in need, please feel free to reach out. Meanwhile, just in Sishin and actually all the time, uh, take good care get enough rest, stay hydrated, very important, stay hydrated, and be kind to yourself. This being kind to yourself is part of the, it's really part of the flavor of our Soto Zen school. And, uh, just remember that. So that said, again, let's just take a pause and take a few mindful breaths. I'd like to talk about Sangha a bit. This has been now two years of testing times for our community and also for communities all over the world, really. 
Uh, but it's also testing time in our individual lives and in our family lives. And just as in Sishin, how we meet our painful legs, what we learn in these testing times can help us in times to come, whatever those times may bring. So, so far, we've met an unanticipated and unprecedented pandemic, which is not over. You know, I'm sure like myself, many of you have been uh, seeing the news and watching uh, the rising threat of another potentially virulent uh, COVID wave with a, a variant that seems very serious. Parallel to the pandemic, we journeyed alongside uh, our beloved teacher Sojin through his illness, his declining health, and his death. Uh, I am grateful for your invitation to be the abbot and to uh, embark on that, which is another transition, uh, which means new forms of leadership in our wise and wide community. So each of these circumstances is a major kind of transition. And now in the last month or so, we've been carefully examining the possibility of opening the Zendo in a sort of methodical way, careful way in the new year. And we do this without knowing if there are, we it can contemplate this anyway, without knowing if there are to be further waves of infection or, you know, even any real assurance of a durable immunity to uh, the COVID virus. So we've met these circumstances as Sangha. So I want to tell you the word Sangha is a Sanskrit word that's found in uh, a number of Indian languages. Uh, and it means essentially association or assembly, company or community. And it's interesting, it was historically used in a political context, uh, going back to uh, the Buddhist time and even before that, it denoted the kind of governing assembly in a, uh, in a kingdom or a republic. And it has long been used by religious associations in India, including Buddhists, Jains, and Sikhs. And uh, in Buddhism, originally, it referred to the monastic community of bhikkhus, monks, and bhikkhunis, nuns. Uh, and then there was a separate designation of Sangha, the Arya Sangha, which was uh, the association or the, the loose 
assembly of all those who had entered one of the four stages of enlightenment. Uh, and that applied to uh, monastics, non-monastics, women and men. But in our modern understanding, uh, and this is something that evolved with Mahayana Buddhism, Sangha means the broad community of practitioners, uh, which would include uh, ordained and lay people. And that's a distinction that is not so clear in our tradition. Uh, but really we think of we think of the Maha Sangha, we think of the Sangha of, of all practitioners and we feel some connection with them. And then we have the particularity of this Sangha, of the Berkeley Zen Center Sangha. So when I use the word Sangha, that's, that's how I'm using it. That's how I'm thinking about it. Uh, I feel that everybody here uh, is part of the Sangha. So the questions that we face as a Sangha about how to reopen really make for a kind of new testing time. Within our community, there are some people who, by virtue of compromised uh, health conditions or a compromised immune system are not able to receive the COVID vaccine. There are those who, for reasons that I can well understand, uh, are skeptical of a government-run vaccination uh, regime. And while I may disagree with that position, even though I have questions about, because I have questions about the government itself, uh, I can understand it. There are some members who feel that we have been too cautious and too restrictive about opening for practice on the BZC grounds. Uh, and they might feel that we should have uh, opened in some ways uh, a while ago. And there's some who feel we are moving too fast towards opening. So this is something that the Sangha leaders with and all Sangha members have been discussing and offering input to. Uh, and as the abbot, I'm trying to come up with and support measured policies and approaches with the full awareness that nothing these days uh, is entirely safe. And I understand from our understanding of Dharma that uh, this is not just true today, but it's always been true. Everything that we do involves some risks and hazards, and that's part of the, the nature of our life. I've also been in the last couple of weeks in really helpful discussions with Zen centers and teachers around the country to see what their approaches and experiences might be. And I want to say that whatever we decide to do, if the circumstances change, we will change our response if the circumstance if we're open and circumstances change and there's a there's a, a wave of infection then we'll close it's as simple as that we're not going to get stuck in a particular course of action and uh 
you know, ride that horse off the cliff. I hope that's not going to be the case. But all of us have noticed that things in life don't move in a straight line. And while we're looking at uh, such points, I recognize that whatever we decide to do, everyone is not going to be unhappy. Everyone's not going to be happy about it. Uh, There's no one choice or one strategy that we can make that everyone is going to say yes. And that is part of the challenge of being a Sangha. Uh, I think one of the values that was always emphasized by Sojin Roshi and by all of our Zen ancestors is that we try to do things together. And this applies even when we may not, may not fully understand or agree with that particular course. I want to be, I want you to understand that I'm not asking anyone to be silent about your views. But also at the same time, if we make our best considered decision, uh, try it out. You know, just try it out. And only when we make the effort to cooperate will we have a basis for understanding whether our direction is correct or not. So I find these questions very challenging. Um, I've spent more than 20 years in a uh, position supporting the abbot where I didn't have to make these decisions. He had to make them. And uh, I must say from my present vantage point, I realize how uh, comfortable that was not to have to make the decisions. Um, but it also has me reflecting on what my responsibilities are now and what teachings it seems important to highlight. You know, I was thinking about this talk all this week and I had various ideas. And as is often the case, kind of things don't snap into focus until relatively late. Um, I would love to be tackling with you one of our deep koans that express the Zen practice that we love. Or to be exploring the wisdom of the ancestral teachings, or as I, as I love to, uh, to look at the building blocks of basic Buddhism. And that I wish that we had more opportunity uh, to work one-on-one, face-to-face. There's really nothing that gives me greater satisfaction than, than meeting with you.
But as I reflect on the last two years, I realize that I've had a slightly different focus. And, you know, that's this talk is an expression of that. Uh, my effort has been to attend to the harmony of the Berkeley Zen Center Sangha as a whole. To hold, to hold us in, in harmony through these passages, challenges and concerns that we share and questions that we share. And so the shape of that is many meetings, many one-to-one -one discussions, taking walks with people. And in this, I am grateful for the support that I've had from so many of you, even in moments that we may not fully agree. So as I've said before, and I'll reiterate, uh, my door is literally open, uh, literally and figuratively, if you will. And my promise is to do my best to listen. So to step back a moment, uh, and this will be looking at kind of a piece of basic, well, the phone is ringing in here. I have no idea. It never rings. I think I'm not going to answer it if that's okay. But let's let it ring. Consider it a bell of mindfulness. So the model for our Sangha governance uh, is, is an ancient model and it's also a modern model. So this is going back to the Buddha's time uh, where he lived in and around a confederation of uh, city-states that were functionally what we call republics. A republic means uh, of, it's a form of governments in which power is held by the people and or their elected representatives. So in republics, the country is concerned a public matter. This is res publica not the private concern of, of a king or a dictator or an autocrat. It's not the property. The country is not the property of the rulers. So the Buddha borrowed this model from the city-state that he saw around him. And this is early democracy. So I want to read you something from uh, a text called the uh, the Bhikkhu Aparanihaya Sutta, which is roughly translated as the, it's the seven conditions for social harmony in the Sangha. And it's taken from the Pali Suttas. Uh, and you can find this in Bhikkhu Bodhi's anthology, The Buddha's Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony. So the sutta goes like this. I'm not going to read all of it. It's not that long, but uh, thus I have heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was teaching in Vesali. 
uh, at the Sandara shrine. So Visali was one of the one of those North Indian republics. Uh, it was the capital of the Lichavian state, uh, which was part of the Vajian confederation. So the Buddha was teaching there, and a number of Lichavis approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down on one side. The Blessed One said, I will teach you, Lichavis, the principles of non-decline, meaning uh, the principles of non-decline of your, of your community, your state. Uh, he wasn't teaching to monks here. He was teaching to lay people. Listen and attend closely. One, Lichavis, as long as the Vajis assemble often and hold frequent assemblies, only growth is to be expected from them and not decline. So the first point is just that in order to make decisions, first, people have to come together in a regular way. And there's more. The second point talks about the character of those assemblies. Two, as long as the Vajis assemble in harmony, adjourn in harmony, and conduct the affairs of the Vajis in harmony, only growth is to be expected from them, not decline. In other words, uh, I think as I expressed in, in my last talk, uh, there's a quality of civility and mutual respect in these assemblies. Uh, that's the kind of harmony. They come together that, that way and they carry that through to the end so that when they leave from this assembly, they also hold this feeling of harmony. Third point, as long as the Vajis do not decree anything that has not been decreed or abolish anything that has, that has already been decreed, but undertake and follow the ancient Vajji principles as they have been decreed, only growth is to be expected from them, for them, not decline. I think my understanding of this is, is not that the principles were carved in stone, but it means to give honor to precedent. Uh, before you change something, uh, or before you make a new decree, really consider what has already been in place. And I think as all of us have discovered both on a small and on a grand scale that when you change something, there are many unforeseen ramifications of that change. So uh, I think the Buddha is asking the, the Vijayans to really consider widely before you make any kind of change in the course of your governance or the course of your action. The fourth point is, as long as the Vajis honor, respect, esteem, and venerate their elders and think they should be heeded, growth is expected for them and not decline. So I think the point is there that there's a settledness in our elders that we really ought to pay attention to. 
uh, because there's some wisdom that abides in, in our elders. Uh, rather than uh, the kind of impulsiveness that all of us are familiar with from our own youth. And some, some of us are still young and still have that impulsiveness. And some of us even who are old are, <laughs> carry, carry that, those characteristics in us. So it's like, learn from that wisdom. Uh, the fifth point, the, the fifth, sixth, and seven points are kind of interesting. Uh, the fifth point is, as long as the Vajians do not abduct women and girls from their families and force them to live with them, only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. So this suggests to me that uh, perhaps this was a problem that they had in their communities. And I don't think we're done with this problem, uh, whether you think of it in a literal term, in literal terms or in figurative terms, uh, which is in figurative terms, I think, I think of as you could say, uh, as long as the Vajis do not oppress women, and you can extend that to other aspects of our community, but respect them, uh, that's a necessary condition for continued growth and not decline. And the sixth point, which is interesting, coming from the Buddha who was uh, presumably generating a new religious tradition. But the point is, as long as the Vajis honor, respect, esteem, and venerate their traditional shrines, both those without this, within the city and those outside, and do not neglect the righteous oblations as given and done to them in the past, only growth is to be expected them for them and not decline. In other words, have irrespective of what your spiritual religious beliefs may be, to respect other forms of religion is an important principle. Here he's talking, he's talking to the Vajians, but he's also talking to the Sangha of the Sangha. Uh, and this is an important thing for us to recognize uh, that there are different ways that we have within our Sangha and within perhaps uh, Berkeley, California, United States, the world. And the final point he's encouraging is as long as the Vajis provide righteous protection, shelter, and guard. Uh, for the arhats, which is the enlightened beings. Uh, with the intention, how can those arhats who have not yet come here come to our realm? And how can those arhats who have already come here dwell at ease? Only growth is to be expected for them and not decline. So in other words, how do we make our community a place that welcomes wisdom. And I would say, how do we make our community, uh, how do we make our Sangha, the BCC Sangha, a place that welcomes uh, enlightened activity and wisdom of any kind from any sector and to support it and recognize it. That's part of our responsibility. The Chavis, as long as these seven principles of non-decline continue among the Vajis and the Vajis are established in them, only growth is to be expected for them 
and not decline. And what I would suggest is certainly something like these principles apply to our community. And I would also suggest that I think we're doing pretty good in upholding these principles, which we may not always completely be able to articulate, but in the spirit, the spirit of them is being upheld, which is why our community is growing, which is why we have new people coming to sit with us. We have people from different communities coming to sit with us, people of of different ages, different racial or ethnic backgrounds. And that points to, it points to, I think, uh, a kind of openness that we're trying to cultivate. And what I'd say is there's more work to do. So to keep these principles in mind, particularly as we're facing the kinds of challenges that are there for us day to day lately in so many in so many different areas in society in the health of the world uh, and in our own lives so i'd like to open open for uh, your comments and questions. And uh, Blake will call on you. And I'd like to encourage people, if you can, ask a question. And also encourage you to be lean of expression so that we have time for uh, people really to, uh, to participate as much as they might want to. So with that, I will uh, allow Blake to do the honors of calling on people, and uh, I welcome your thoughts. Thank you, Hozan. Yes, I was thinking more like Shosan and less like T with the Q and A uh, today and all the Saturdays. Um. First, uh, Ten, my brother, my friend, what's up? Hi, Ten. Hey, everybody. Great to see you. It's really very good to see you as well. Um, I have, I, I was very moved by um, the talk. Uh, thank you very much. I wanted to go back to something you said before you started the talk proper that Soto Zen's flavor is to be kind. Um, this is something that I deeply struggle with in my myself and was wondering if you could advise a beginner's kindness practice. Well, of course, first you have to start by being kind to yourself, but actually that may not be the case. It may be the thing to do actually if that doesn't work, because we're so, we have so many patterns of, of kind of self-punishment, um, maybe the, the way to begin, if that's, if that's a difficulty that one has, is to be kind to those around you. And so I don't see, uh, my feeling is, we work from the inside out and from the outside in. And so if if one doesn't seem a skillful approach, then then try the other. Uh, but what I will see, I was so moved, you know, uh, we had a meeting of, of Soto priests. Uh, we had a three-day meeting week before last. And just the kindness of everyone was so palpable. 
and what it what it brings forth in me is just a a feeling of love and gratitude and even if as i say this kind of the emotion and tears rise and that's what i feel like i got from my teachers and that's what i i want to share with you you know so uh you can you can borrow it from your teachers and apply it to those around you and then it will uh it'll slowly take root within you does that make sense i really like the idea of kindness as a thing you can borrow um i don't know exactly where that path is going to lead me but that's something that i have a lot of curiosity about right now so thank you but if you borrow the thing is when you borrow something which is a gift that's been given you the responsibility is to pass that gift along so keep the gift of kindness in circulation thank you rondi and charlie Oh, good morning, Hosan. I just have a technical question. If we're communicating with you or other practice leaders, uh, what is the preferred channel of communication? And um, uh, should should you or the practice leaders uh, respond with the same channel, be it telephone or email or or whatever you're selecting. I will say that for me, um, because I'm stuck someplace about 10 years ago, uh, the best mode of communicating, the most likely that I will see it is if you send me an email. If you send me an email, I will receive it. I don't, I tend not to miss those. And then, uh, you know, we can figure, you can even say, uh, could you give me a call? That's fine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like not if we start one thing, we have to do that. But just I will warn you all that I'm really not good at receiving texts. I, I, <laughs> I, I haven't entered the text age. So emails are, emails are fine. And calls are fine. Phone calls are fine. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Ryushin. Hosan Sensei, thank you very much for a very encouraging and open talk. My question is about one of the points that was about listening to the wisdom, is it of the elders or of the community? And my question about that is, sometimes you don't hear wisdom as wisdom. And sometimes if it comes from a perspective that's so different from your own, perhaps within the community, it's very hard to be open to or hear it as wisdom. Do you have any words of advice or guidance for that? Well, first of all, none of these are absolute, of course. Uh, so it's not like all old people are really smart. Uh, you know, and some of us say and do stupid things that are not wisdom. So you have to be, you have to discern. Uh, my experience uh, sometimes Sojin was pretty tough on me and said things that were really hard for me to receive. And what I did come to as a practice was to take it in whether it was painful or not and to really believe there's something here that i can learn from and not to so not to argue and not to push back, particularly in the moment. You know, I may think about it and then come back and uh, and we can mix it up. And that may be, you know, you may have that response 
to me or to someone else. But I truly believed that uh, there was something I could learn here and I would look for it. I would step back, uh, you know, literally in space and time and try to see what that was. I really appreciate that response and have a lot of resonance with, as you might imagine. I'm wondering if you think that could apply too when we hear different opinions or different experiences that people Sangha have that come out of their own life that may seem to land in a difficult way, but are spoken with a, a sincerity or a sense of their truth. And could you say something about that? Yes. Um, whatever people, whatever views people arrive at are arising, if you will, if you want to look at it in Buddhist uh, doctrinal terms, it's arising from their alaya vishnayana. It's arising from the storehouse consciousness. It's arising from some experience that they've had. Now, of course, that experience then is filtered through, it's often filtered through the, the delusive mechanism of self. But there's something in that, what, what it is important for me, for you, for all of us is to um, recognize that it's not coming from nowhere. That it's, uh, there's some basis for it. And before, again, before arguing with it to, uh, to recognize and acknowledge that fact and respect that people have different different experiences. I think we, have we lost Andrea? Maybe so. Yes, um, yes. I think she dropped off, which okay. uh, happens sometimes. Um, but you, we have a few more minutes. We have a few more minutes, and she'll be able to look at the uh, uh, video on YouTube at some point. I invite you all to come over and check out our YouTube channel if you haven't, and subscribe. Uh, questions, answer, uh, questions or comments, brief. Ross Blum. Good morning, Hosan Sensei. Morning. Um, you opened your talk today uh, speaking about the resource of uh, medical and therapeutic professionals here in our Sangha if things come up um, during Zazen, especially during Sashin. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the distinction between uh, sitting practice and therapy practice and how do we um, keep these two um, uh, paths of, of understanding ourselves um, separate and respectful of each other and how do we use both in order to be uh, more wholesome beings? Well, I may be about to say something that's an oversimplification. Uh, I think that there's overlaps, uh, of course, in the sense that uh, both methodologies are aiming at uh, harmonizing one's life. Um, but I was the method of uh, Buddhism and the method of Zen is to I say to uh, to deconstruct the delusive self and uh, to recognize its impermanence and uh, its emptiness. Uh, the methodology of 
therapy uh, may call for a more immediate reconstruction of self. Uh, so in, in you know, uh, we have, I will say, I think that what we have in our own experience here in the West is a, a kind of hybrid, more of a hybrid experience. Whereas if you go uh, to Japan or you go, you know, you go to a Buddhist country, uh, you know, in, in Dokusan, you're not going to be talking about yourself. Uh, but we're, we're sort of treading this, this middle ground, but it's, you know, if you can do this process of really investigating the mechanism of self-making, I think that's the mechanism of self-making is really, uh, where we get caught in Buddhist terms. So I think that's a, I think that's a, a difference, at least an emphasis. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. Um, it is a hybrid here. Um, there's a saying you have to have a, a healthy self to forget the self. Yes. And so if people are experiencing a sort of a, a, an unhealthiness about themselves, uh, we encourage people to go to into to therapy practice. That's right. And that uh, Dokusan or practice discussion isn't the venue at BZC to discuss the self in that context. And we have a policy about, you know, that therapists don't draw clients from our Sangha. Right. So we uh, try to encourage people to working with their teacher or their mentors how to uh, work in the appropriate venue to uh, understand each other understand ourselves and thereby each other. Yeah. Thank so you. just something that occurs to me from which I've spoken about numerous times from my own direct experience, I came to, I returned to Zen practice when I actually really came here in the, not the first time in the sixties, but in the, in the early eighties, mm -hmm. I came to it directly out of therapy. And I, went to my therapist one day and I said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing on this planet. I don't know what my purpose is here. And she said to me, which was fantastic. She said, that's not a psychotherapeutic question. That's a spiritual question. So you should try to find a spiritual approach to answering that question that immediately pointed me i mean i said oh okay i'm going to look at buddhism again that that was the direct path mm -hmm. so uh maybe that's a, a useful distinction yeah that's how we yeah. met yeah thank hey, you brother. maybe we'll take one more Mary D. Hi, thank you. Um, this is sort of a question, but I, the way the context that I heard you mention consulting with a doctor or a therapist in the sauna this morning was as a consultation rather than as being in treatment. And I'm no, gonna, not in treatment. Right, but I think, and I, but I think the distinction is important because I mean it's easier. I think when you talk about a medical doctor. I, I have in, in a session talked to a, one of the doctors about this pain in my knee. Is it something that I should sit through or should I not sit through? Am I injuring myself? Or this symptom I have, does this mean I, sh I have a cold and I should take myself away? That, that kind of consultation. And I think in that context, we're not talking about being in therapy or being in treatment with a doctor, right? Yes, thank you for that clarification. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, we're not we're not invoking our medical resources to be a a doctor to you in some in some wider sense. It's like somebody may need to consult and say, okay, you should really step aside from this, or you should you should go see a doctor. And the same thing with therapists. You know, you're you may you're having a psychological emergency. I mean, one of the things that 
uh, we it happened just before Mary's talk that week. We had a a priest meeting, and uh, Hondo Dave Rutschman brought an article to reflect on about uh, a terrible experience and and a pattern of experiences that people were having in certain kinds of retreat formats, which was not not Zen, of uh, basically uh, a kind of mental deconstruction or decompensation from, uh, you know, like 18 hours of meditation a day. Uh, and that, you know, and they they were not really, nobody was taking responsibility for their state of being. But I will say um, that uh, we don't, you know, people have mental problems, and but our form, the form of our sashin, which is wonderful, is uh, we do a lot of sitting, but we also work, we eat, we walk, we cook and serve. It's like really a model of our whole life. And um, if you bring an integral model of your whole life, if you frame it as practice, um, I think you're less likely to uh, to have those decompensations. Sojin, Laurie was pointing out, Sojin had said that um, reflecting on his early days at, at San Francisco Zen Center, uh, once they instituted a work period, there were many fewer psychological difficulties because it's a, it's a kind of more normal and physical activity than, you know, the activity of just sitting cross-legged. So yes, to, to get back to your point, uh, these resources are available as consultation for, you know, for the moment, not as not as uh, resources for an ongoing medical or therapeutic relationship. That's an important point. <laughs>